Hello, everybody. This is Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasper. Frank. Hey. Oh, that's weird. You must have like started talking right over top of me, like right towards the end, and it like ended up not registering you. Like, well, this is Frank Pelican. <laughs> I'm glad that's settled. Um, <clears throat> this is episode 111, and the category tonight is the top five horror movies of 1994. So this is our fifth episode of the year now, um, following the top movies, uh, horror movies of each year in the 1990s. Um, we did this last year uh, in terms of, or no, two years ago, in terms of the 80s movies, the horror B-movies list. Um, now we're just covering horror movies in the 90s. And um, how do you feel about this list this week, Brian? Um, it's a good list. I mean, I think that all five of the movies are um entertaining and um definitely hmm, there's a lot a little more like artistic creativity and vision i think in all five of these movies than what maybe you're used to in like a traditional horror um a couple of like lovecraftian-esque like cosmic horrors on this list um a couple of sequels and a pretty bizarre like art house i don't even know what you call that movie like aside from just calling it horror um italian film so a nice variety on what we're going to talk about yeah um so as always i'm going to ask you at least about a few movies here um in terms of um other movies from this year why they didn't make the list and then you said you already pulled this up as well. So if you had anything you wanted to mention. Um, all right. So uh, the first one I wanted to ask you about is Interview with the Vampire and what your feelings are on that movie. Um, I like Interview with the Vampire. Um, I mean, out of all five movies on this list, it's probably like would have been the most professional, the most, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think of it more of like a gothic horror romance. I don't know, because it's such, like, a successful film and it's so big budget and has such, like, a wide, I don't know, like, pop culture influence, I don't necessarily think of it as kind of a, like, a B-horror movie, Mm -hmm. which is what I look at, like, you know, when we make these lists, when we talk about them, I'm usually looking at things that are more, like, low-budget, direct-to-video, limited theatrical release, or little known because they were foreign films that didn't get a wide release over here beyond like the the cult video market so sure some things i guess interview with vampires is a really i loved it when i saw it as a kid um i don't know if i love it as much when i see it as an adult but i still think it's a really good movie it's got some pretty great performances in it um it's definitely was like the kickstart to the the sexy vampire craze of like the nineties and two thousands. Sure. Probably. All right. Fired a number of uncomfortable fetishes and <laughs> and women across the land in the sure. early nineties. Sure. I mean, look, I, I've really, I haven't seen interview with Empire as an adult. So I have no idea. Um, I haven't seen it since the nineties. Um, I liked it in the theater when I first saw it. Um, overall, I um, that's 
before it came out, I guess it probably got that, like, you know, release without the movie cover, but it was like, hey, there's a motion picture coming or whatever. And that's the copy of I had of the book. Um, so I know I read it before the movie came out, but I quickly ended up reading like the Vampire Lestat and what Queen of the Damned and like all those rice books. Um, so it actually like the release of this, the, of that like got me into um, reading Anne Rice for better or worse. Um, mm. There, The Witching Hour, I still say is a really good book, but um, <clears throat> yeah. Um, I had not read the book before I saw the movie, so I had no preconceived notions of what was supposed to happen. So I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, I think I've read Interview and Vampire Lestat, and I think that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, my my best friend in high school's mom was super obsessed with Anne Rice, like in love with Anne Rice and all of her books, and she took us to see this movie um on opening night. And she she loved it, so I assumed that it was you know whatever. It's fairly like, yeah, yeah. I know that there's like a lot more that happens in the book, like a lot more backstory, but for the most part, it's pretty yeah, relatively no. faithful adaptation. <clears throat> Absolutely. Um, Neil Jordan's a very ranges from very competent to brilliant director, so yeah, there's definitely flashes of that like throughout this movie, and I think the Cruz and Pitt are like beautiful and weird enough in their roles to really be effective um, yeah kirsten dunce like steals the um steals the show in my opinion she's pretty um agreed yeah uh, pretty pretty amazing for being as young as she was when that movie came out yeah uh, and playing like such an old character in right. a lot of ways but agreed yeah it's a really good movie it's just it, it doesn't necessarily in my opinion fit with the b All right but uh what about wolf I'm not a huge fan of Wolf. I know that some people really like that movie, but I mean, it's fine. Um, I, I have a I, feeling this is a movie we've never talked about off the podcast before, which is why I was interested in hearing what you had to say about Wolf. I have a love-hate relationship with, with werewolves. Mm-hmm. Like, I either really, really love werewolf movies or I just don't think they're any good at all. Like, there's no in-between. Like, to me, there's not like a... Like, I mean, it was fine. Werewolf movie. Um, I don't know. I think this movie's kind of goofy. Wolf, like, I don't remember really taking it seriously. Um, at the time when it came out, I was really into stuff like, um, like American Werewolf in London. Um, the early, like the first couple of Howling movies, I liked a lot, and I don't know that I necessarily. I think I put it in a category where it was too much of like a, like a mainstream movie that just happened to have like a whatever supernatural element as opposed to being like a legit horror movie. Yeah, I I only saw Wolf in the theater. I think Bloodsoe and I saw it. I don't know if anybody else was there. And um, I mean, we came out of that movie goofing on it pretty hard. I mean, I, I thought it was pretty pretty silly movie. And then I I think the, probably the more relevant cultural um like whatever like remnant of wolf Moore is that seinfeld episode um that parodies wolf where jerry uh shaves his chest hair do you remember do you, did you ever see this episode i don't uh, know the episode no um jerry shaves his chest hair and it's growing back in so he starts like itching 
and they basically do like an episode with the wolf parody where it's like he's like <laughs> ripping his ripping his shirt off on a bus and like running out into the um but yeah um yeah I thought it was a pretty goofy movie but I had never heard what you thought of that movie before so. have you I seen really, it? Uh Jesus no it's been um I mean I didn't see it in the theater I saw it on video hmm. like after so probably in 95 yeah all right, last one I had to ask you about is a movie we have talked about off air before, um, and um, you rolled your eyes at me, I think, uh, is The Return of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 1994, the one with McConaughey in it, and Renee, Renee Zellweger. Is that 94? I thought that was 95. It says 94 here. Hmm. Um, the Next Generation, right? I, I'm not a fan of this movie. Yeah. Um, I remember like being really hyped to see it and just being kind of nonplussed by it. Like it's too much. Um, I know that you have very strong opinions to the negative about Texas Chainsaw Massacre too. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people dislike Leatherface, which is the third one. But to me, like, even though they kind of veer into the campy, there's still movies about that family, you know? And like, I don't know. Like, I, I just don't like the direction that the next generation or whatever it's called takes. Um, I think it's way too hip for its own good, way too, like, um, I don't know what the word I'm looking for. Like, self-aware, maybe? It's it's entirely self-aware, I think, yeah. Right. And I don't know that I appreciate that. Like, as silly as it is to watch Dennis Hopper, like, testing out chainsaws and losing his mind like there still is an element of sincerity to it i guess you know what i mean like it still Mm. is like firmly grounded in that universe even if it is a little more i don't know like irreverent or whatever um it still is about the family and it still is like his vision about you know Almost like making fun of himself when he has more money and he has the ability to like make this movie about, mm-hmm. you know, the power of like myth and the idea of like these people that kind of like live underneath like the surface of society, sort of. Um, and Leatherface is just a goofy ass movie, but it's got some really like cool scenes in it. But I don't know. I'm just, I'm not a fan of um, the fourth one. Okay, just wondering. Yeah, I I I liked it overall. Um, I I don't think it's like you know a great horror movie, but it does think, tie, it does kind of tie into like some things that are going to start happening though. Now that I think of, I didn't think about this till now in terms of some of the self awareness and like there's there's something that we we've never talked about. This. There's something. Like, I enjoy the Scream movies, but I like the Scream movies less as I get older because there's something innocent about, like, a horror movie that's made, and this is, like, a ridiculous word to use, but, like, a horror movie that's made just from someone that wants to tell a scary story and not layer a bunch of subtext underneath it, where, like, I find that to be really tiresome at times, and it kind of draws me out of the idea that I'm watching a horror movie. Because at that point, I'm watching social commentary. Like, I don't mind. I'm trying to think of a good example. Like, I don't mind a movie like we were talking about this off air the other night. Like, it follows. 
like I think it follows is a really good movie because I think it works just as a horror movie. Like, and there's all kinds of social commentary and gender role commentary and I don't know, like whatever the prevalence of like sexually transmitted diseases and the, um, the dangers of like not educating your children or leaving your kids unprepared to like deal with those kind of things. But at its core, like it's a good scary movie if you just watch it for that. And it's Mm -hmm. like when the subtext overwhelms like the narrative, then it just becomes really boring. And honestly, like as bad as they are, like the later scream movies are just like, they just become parody. So in some ways it's, I don't know. Well, it like gets that, it gets too meta by the end because right. at this point it's just become and we're, you know what let's hold off on this conversation because I yeah yeah it's well, gonna it's gonna come back in this episode soon enough but um the scream conversation specifically I mean well we got two months right before we're gonna yeah have that two conversation, months ninety six so. yeah so um <clears throat> spoiler you know, because I I am a huge proponent of that movie um yeah. so there's a couple other things that came yeah. out this year um. I thought about putting the crow, um, but I consider the crow to be more sci-fi, like a sci-fi thriller than I do a horror movie. Um, even though it involves like the resurrection through like mystical means of whatever, like a murdered musician or whatever the yeah. fuck. I, I, I hear. You. Um, and I enjoy the crow and I know that like, again, that's something where there's some difference. Um, I, I think the crow has problems, but I think that it's good for what it is. But it's more of like a post-apocalyptic sci-fi thriller to me than it is like a straight-out like horror movie. Right. Um, there's a couple of things that were really great that came out. Well, one thing that was really great and one thing that's not so great um, that came out this year, but they were uh, television series. Um, the first one is The Kingdom um, mm. by Lars von Trier, which was a limited series that was um, a Danish um, television series about a haunted like a hospital that's built on like the well like the burial ground of like the ancient danes or whatever and it's like there, there's some really great stuff in that um even though it becomes a little too meta uh the other thing is um the stand miniseries is this year um which i think had some good elements to it um mick garris directed it so it's got some I don't know what you call it, like horror royalty cred in that respect, but it's still just kind of like a goofy TV movie. Um, and then there's a bunch of shit, like a bunch of sequels this year that are just fine. Um, and we'll talk about a couple sequels, but like Pumpkinhead 2 is a is a decent enough sequel. Um, Night of the Demons 2 is decent enough, like they're both fine. Um, one of the worst horror movies of the 90s came out this year, though, in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Um, I don't know if you saw that. Uh, the one I, that was directed by Branagh with De Niro. No, I've not seen that. I have heard it was so bad I never watched it. Yeah, it's weird because it was this, and then Mary Riley was like either the year before, or the year after, and I you remember were... like, go ahead. I think it's ninety five. Yeah, we made so many jokes because that trailer was like in front of everything, and it was just Mary Riley, Mary Riley. So it was like always going around like going very riley people. Yeah, that was a movie. 
That is Stephen Frears, right? I think. Julia Roberts, terrible. Um, there's also an adaptation of The Lurking Fear, uh, which is one of my favorite um, Lovecraft stories, but it's not very good. So, there ain't okay. nothing to say about say about it other than that. Yeah, I don't know. It's just a bunch of like sequels and shit, like Leprechaun Two and you know Pumpkinhead Two and I. I'm not a like. I, okay, so I like Pumpkinhead Two because I really like Pumpkinhead, and I think Pumpkinhead Two is number one. There was enough of a space between when the first movie came out and when that movie came out where you can actually like have built up, you know, because like a lot. One of the biggest problems of the '80s and '90s is just how like machine gun clip like sequels were. For certain franchises um friday the 13th being like the you know chief offender there but you know there's whatever six seven nightmare on elm street movies before like up to 1995 there's three or four hellraiser movies um at least like three or four halloweens i mean there's plenty of stuff with the franchises where they just had so many movies a few child's plays um but bumpkin had had enough of a space where the second movie is, is decent enough. I've never been a fan of the Leprechaun series, so I really have nothing to say about them. So Yeah. I just saw in Pumpkinhead 2, Roger Clinton plays Mayor Bubba. Isn't that yeah. a isn't that a nineteen ninety four reference right there? Um <clears throat> oh, Roger Clinton. All right. Hey, Bubba. <clears throat> Bubba. All right, you ready to jump in then? All right, number five on your list is In the Mouth of Madness, directed by John Carpenter. Stars Sam Neill, Julie Carmen, Jurgen Prochnow, Charlton Heston, David Warner making his, I think, fifth appearance now, and John Glover has a 58% from critics and a 73% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about the movie and why it made the list? Um, so the third in John Carpenter's Apocalypse um like loose apocalypse trilogy of films uh preceded by um the thing and prince of darkness um this is like the more of like the fantastical like cosmic horror installment of that list um very lovecraftian um kind of like a mix of like lovecraft and poe i would say with like some stephen king elements thrown in kind of um it's bookended by um, uh, Sam Neill being in a psychiatric hospital. Um, he's being investigated um, or being like whatever, not, not interrogated, but like interviewed by this doctor um, where he's kind of telling his story about like how he got there. Um, he plays John Trent, who's an insurance investigator who's hired by a publishing firm to basically find um their biggest star which is this uh horror writer named Sutter Kane um his books have this ability to like kind of drive people insane and at points uh Trent is attacked at one point like they're in a what is it a diner and a guy like wielding an axe like crashes through the window at him mm-hmm. um and it turns out that that guy was Kane's agent um so Trent is matched up with um uh the publishing 
um, the editor of Sutter Kane's novels, uh, Linda Stiles, and that's the um, Julie Carmen character. Um, and they go to kind of investigate and find where Kane is. Um, so they're going to um, New Hampshire to this place called Hobbs End, um, which is in Kane's work, like a fictional location that he sets, kind of like the Castle Rock of Stephen King's world um, where Kane sets his stuff in this Hobbs End place. Um, as they're driving there, uh, honestly, some of the best sequences of the movie are up to this point. Um, as they're driving there, they kind of are stuck in like a, like a time loop sort of, um, where they keep passing the same kid on a bicycle and like the night never seems to end and they never seem to get any closer. And then all of a sudden they're in Hobbs end and it's daylight. Um, they start finding all these places that are in Kane's work. Um, they stay at this hotel, not, no, not the hotel, like bed and breakfast, right? Mm -hmm. Um, where there's like creepy pictures on the wall and like weird stuff happening with the proprietors. Um, I mean, ultimately, you know, events escalate and things get weirder. Um, and Sam Neill, um, ends up getting, hold on it's been a couple of weeks since i watched this again i'm getting events so sam neil basically is trying to escape this mob of people he ends up murdering um this guy who would write who's like bleeding from the eyes and then he gets arrested for murder and that's how he ends up in the asylum um so it turns out that the world has basically been overrun with these monstrous creatures um he goes in to watch a movie based on the movie that you're watching where he's the main character um, and realizes that he was basically a character like in the book all along. Um, the ending kind of basically up to the point where they're in, I think up until the point before they go into the church, so there's this church in this town that's like, again, central and like some of Kane's like works and, that's where like the real like cosmic horror element of the movie comes into play. And like up to that point, I think it's a really good, like kind of close to the vest, like what's happening. I mean, you get these, these like interesting, like neat little hints and not even hints, just like actual like terrible things happen, but there still is an element of reality to it. And then once it kind of pulls apart to that, like, kind of like destroying your suspension of disbelief in the space of the context of the movie. Like, I think it becomes a worse movie and that's sort of where I dislike, not necessarily dislike, but it it's why it doesn't have a higher place on this list. Because honestly, like a lot of this is Carpenter in his prime. Um, there's a lot of really well-directed scenes. Um, sure. The practical effects in a lot of the movie are fantastic. Um, there's a lot of really, I think, um ingenious like horror moments in this movie but it just falls apart at the end with the whole i don't know the whole revelation of like neil is basically not like a real character and like he's a character in the novel or i don't know whatever would have been better if it was just like a, a apocalyptic like we're all doomed end of the world 
I agree with that. Yeah. Um, but Sam Neill is really great in it. Um, he overacts towards the end, but I think that's just Sam Neill's like acting style is to right. kind of choose scenery. Um, and again, like the practical effects are really great in it for most of the movie. Um, it's it's probably it's probably a movie whose real like sin or whatever is that it's the reach like exceeds the grasp or whatever. I mean, it's um right, you know, so super ambitious, especially for just being like a like a mid budget you know horror movie that had they have had more money and maybe like he could have done more of what. I don't know. Maybe he did everything he wanted to. I'm not sure, but I think it could have been better with like a bigger budget and <clears throat> maybe a different ending. Yeah, I don't think they do enough with Sutter Kane. Like it feels yeah. like there's just not a very developed character, and like what they end up doing, like it, you know, it's kind of like a bad example maybe but it's like it's kind of like you know harry lime right like in the third man where it's like you talk about harry lime you talk about harry lime you talk about harry lime and then like you know when he shows up it's like you know here's this really charismatic character like you know and i know wells joked at one point it's like when you're talked about for two-thirds of a movie and you show up in the final third like you know you can you know i can't remember what analogy you made but it's like basically you can like you know just shit on the screen and like you're still going to be great in it um but like, it feels like they talk about Sutter Kane, talk about Sutter Kane, and then when you get to Sutter Kane, it's just like, nah. Yeah. So my, I didn't realize this until a few years after I saw this movie. Um, I I thought watching the movie for the first time, and I don't remember if I saw this in the theater or not. I might have seen this on VHS, like after it was like released, but. My initial thought was that Sam Neill was going to be Sutter King. And the entire time, he was basically tricking himself into being like he was the creator of all of it. And honestly, it was like, and we're, we're going to talk about this movie at some point again, like not really to spoil anything, but his character in Event Horizon is more how I would have liked to have seen him end mm-hmm. in this does that make sense it does like where it's like he was the villain all along basically or something i I don't even know like how you get to that point but i think that's a more interesting ending to the whole thing like i think that that would be because event horizon has no problems or whatever but like that at least like his like basically like hellraiser-esque character like that's why i would have liked to have seen this movie end but I don't know. I mean, it's it's one of Carpenter's like messier productions, I guess, in terms of like the script and the overall like tone. Definitely not as tight as the stuff that like you and I both love from Carpenter. Sure. Um, throughout the nineteen eighties, seventies, eighties. What's fast? Still, like worth seeing. I think. Yeah. Uh, listen to this though. Uh, speaking of the writing of this, because I I think that's probably where it all begins. Like is this on the script level um because i think that i think it was ebert let me see i probably wrote it down yeah it was ebert that actually says it's a really intriguing movie until they get to hobbs corner which i think he misremembers the name but um uh 
he says when, once they arrive there, basically, that it just essentially becomes this kind of um, haunted house movie where things just jump out at you. Um, and it was actually really intriguing up until that point, which I kind of like kind of agree with, even though I like some of the jump scares and the imagery and, you know, the Lovecraftian kind of shit that like uh, Carpenter films at times. Right. Um, but. Uh, the the right and that's why I think it's a script problem is like there's it, it's not paced very well um and 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 kind of loses the intrigue once they get there and and I think that's a script level problem more than anything a story problem so I looked up the screenwriter of this he's only written a few things his name is uh Michael DeLuca and he wrote um as a feature film he wrote Freddy's Dead the Final Nightmare this and Judge Dredd mm. but ended up having a ridiculous career as a producer. Um, I mean, look, these movies aren't critical uh, gems or anything necessarily, but so he goes on to produce Leatherface um, in 90. And then, which actually, I guess, is before he writes Freddy's Dead, but then The Mask, Don Juan DeMarco, Last Man Standing, Long Kiss Goodbye, Baps, Wag the Dog, Dark City. These are all uh, executive producers. Uh, titles lost in space um blade pleasantville the austin power sequel uh and then i'm just gonna pick like magnolia like yeah. uh hedvig blow rush hour two um you know and every town and country huh yeah right and but storytelling then look, but then look at like co-executive producer too it's like deep cover like one uh boogie nights american history x and then he has like stuff more recently that you know like the 50 shade series he was a producer on like um earlier in that like yeah i mean social network and moneyball like so this guy ended up like oddly becoming like a you know pretty well-known producer um which is one of those like weird little things you see sometimes oh under silver like he produced too i just saw um so yeah it's, it's just a weird little thing to me that it's like he um like after, like he ended up having this like great pre- pre- kind of career as a producer, but um, still producing. He's doing a Metro twenty thirty three movie. Oh, hmm, interesting. I wonder what that'll be like. Oh, it looks like he's also doing um maybe a remake of The Great Outdoors. Um, oh Jesus, who gets cast in that? Never mind, I, I don't want to get off topic. <laughs> but um, oh, it's hmm. me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's you and Bledsoe <laughs> which one of us is Dan Aykroyd and which one of us is um John Candy oh hold on which it's oh Candy's the one with the family right yeah, yeah. well Aykroyd has the family too his family's just a bunch of assholes <laughs> right, right 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 I forgot about that yeah I don't know um I think that he's uh, Candy's the more anxiety ridden right so it's like yeah um, he's like the more like kind of like I can't deal with this. Like you're calling me a scumbag, huh? I mean, I think we were going to cast you in a movie where you played a scumbag, a serial killing scumbag. Yeah, it's accurate. <laughs> uh, all right. Um, I I think we can have one more thing to talk about with this movie, but I don't want to talk about it yet because I'd rather talk about the fourth movie and then talk about that part of this because there is crossover between this and the fourth movie i think um 
So number four on your list is Wes Craven's New Nightmare, uh, directed by, of course, Wes Craven, um, starring Heather Langenkamp, uh, Robert Englund, Miko Hughes, and David Newsom. It has a 79% from uh, critics and 66% from audiences. You want to tell us just a little bit about this movie and why you put this on the list? Uh, so probably the ultimate like meta horror movie. Um, the movie stars Heather Langenkamp as Heather Langenkamp, um, playing herself as a veteran of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. Um, she lives in a fictionalized Los Angeles with her fictional husband, Chase, son, Dylan. Um, she is plagued by nightmares um, that have started uh, regarding like the coming of Freddy um, in the kayfabe universe of um, this 1994 Los Angeles. Um, Freddy was killed off in the series and while being like a wildly popular um, horror icon uh, has not been like the series has not been rebooted. Um, she starts to have nightmares and receive like mysterious phone calls um, from somebody that does the one, two, Freddy's coming for you thing to her um, in a really like hilarious voice, actually, at one point. Um, so she's invited to go to New Line Cinema to meet with um, the guy that's the legit. Um, uh, what's it called? Um, like Ed. He's like the head of the network or the head of the studio, right? Yeah. But is like really the head of the studio in like real life. Um where he pitches to her that they um they want to reboot the series, they want to bring her back together with um co-star Robert England. So they appear on a TV show together and she's really uncomfortable like seeing him and his Freddie get up. Um So her husband ends up getting killed, but her husband has been secretly working on this reboot of the Nightmare on Elm Street series. Um, so the more that they keep like creating this movie, the more people keep getting like killed. Um, and her son is pseudo possessed and like having like health problems, um, based on like his association with her and. The fact that he's like, I guess, I don't know if obsessed with Freddy Krueger, but like, you know, obviously like influenced by it. Um, so Wes Craven, who plays himself in the movie and is the director and creator of Nightmare on Elm Street, um, reveals that, um, they basically have, like, it's, they're bringing the entity of Freddy Krueger back into the world. So it becomes, like you're watching these people that exist in real life, but then the fictional character is being brought back into the world through the creation of, um, of this movie that's, uh, you know, whatever, like precipitated by like earthquakes and shit. But then ultimately it just becomes like a nightmare in Elm Street movie, um, where they've all like, they're forced into the roles from the movie itself. And so Freddy is, you know, like chasing him through like the iconic sets and scenes and shit of Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, so she, by playing Nancy one last time, is able to defeat Freddy. Um, and it helps to imprison like the demonic entity of Freddy, like within the film, in the fictitious landscape of the movie. Um 
and saves the day and saves her kid, even though her husband dies, which I guess is fucked up. But right. Um. So a really interesting, like, meta commentary on the idea that, like, I mean, obviously, like, it makes it, it's not so much commentary because it makes it, like, I don't even know how to fucking say it. Like, it makes it real, I guess, quote, right? where it's, like, it's, like, Wes Craven is saying, like, the reason that these movies existed was to try and defeat this actual evil demon and trap him in a way where he can't get out and, like, cause harm in the real world. Um, it was pretty astounding at the time to see this movie to see these actors play themselves and discuss things about themselves you know John Saxon, Robert England mm-hmm. Heather Langenkamp, Wes Craven um, when you look into it there's actually like a ton of people that are real like producers and production agents and like even people in like the secretarial pool of new line cinema that are in this movie, like playing themselves in this movie. Um, so a lot of the people in it are really based around the actual world of creating the movie. Um, it's a pretty ingenious concept of the idea that like this, this entity has so much power that's generated from like the adoration of the people watching the franchise, you know, that it needs to be contained and like basically destroyed by the people that created it, which I think is, I think it's a really cool concept. Um, I think the unfortunate thing is that it's the least. I mean, if you take out stuff like Freddy's dead and um, maybe the dream child out of the equation, it's the least fantastical looking of the nightmare on Elm street movies. Like it's my complaint about the conjuring series where everything feels fucking fat to me. Like, everything feels like it's like you feel like you're watching people in makeup and sets and you know yeah it it doesn't have that lean like gritty almost like fever dream look of the first few nightmare on elm street movies which i think is like what their um their main appeal is in my opinion like it's just it, it feels sure and particularly three has that fever dream more than any of them to me um it just feels fake kind of yeah um and when it turns into just kind of a standard nightmare in elm street slasher i mean even though that the conceit of the plot device is still there it does basically just become like a slasher a freddy slasher movie like in the last third of the movie i guess um it's just not as entertaining as the beginning like, I, I legitimately love the first 30 minutes of this movie where you have no idea mm-hmm. what the fuck is going on. And it's, like, so believable that, like, this is these people's actual lives and it feels, like, real and lived in right? Um, as a world. And it's when it gets away from that a little bit that it becomes not as great a movie. Um, I think it's interesting that he goes on to make Scream a few years after this which is basically taking like a thin through line of the fourth wall breaking idea of like horror and reality mixing and then creating the movie that he created in Scream, um, which is a much better representation of the sort of ideas that are inherent in this, which is like, how does horror influence the real world? Like, where's the, like, how are the lines blurred between reality and cinema and whatever? And, Right. 
Um, it's just unfortunate, you know, I mean, because you got to deliver like Freddy Krueger at that point, but um, still, a, it's, it's, it's a fitting end to the, the England based Nightmare on Elm Street stuff. Um, taking the fucking garbage ass remake from like the mid 2000s out of the equation. Oh, boy. A piece of absolute shit. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I think this movie just like the the longer and longer it goes, the duller it gets to me. Um, I really like this movie up until a point, and then by the end, I'm just like, oh, okay, this is another fucking Nightmare on Elm Street movie. Like, the, so the problem with this franchise is the same problem with the Halloween franchise, which is trying to ascribe some sort of like mythic god creature quality to Freddy Krueger and Michael Myers. Where instead of just being like, who knows how the fuck these guys never die or how Freddy moves through your dreams or how Michael Myers can take like a bullet to the head and get right back up. You know, like the mystery of that is what makes them horrifying. But when you turn them into like these fairy tale boogeymen, you know, like Freddy's the whatever the fuck, like they kind of create this mythology and yeah five or six or whatever where it's like he's the manifestation of these dream fucking demons from like the, the i don't know are those are those, are those the ones that popped out of the screen at me in 3d is that the yeah yeah, yeah uh-huh. that's them the little, yeah. little spermies mm-hmm. little sperm freddies yeah, yeah right <laughs> right i still have those glasses did i tell you that but i found those yeah, that's funny um but anyway, so this um, it's got some really great parts to it. I I think that it's it's a really brilliant idea. I think it's a very daring way to try and provide closure to a franchise that you created. Um, and there is a lot of like internal like commentary there. I guess probably of how um, Wes Craven felt about the franchise and. You know, because he didn't want to just make Freddy movies forever. He wanted to do other stuff, but here he is, like, kind of, like, almost chained to this character because he created it, and, like, he can't get away from the idea that, like, you know, hey, I made this movie over here. Ah, but what's going on with Freddy Krueger? Like, right. you know, so. And Robert England, I'm sure, feels the same way. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely has to. Probably Um, Heather Langenkamp, too. Like, it's also probably a really interesting commentary on her because here's this person that feels like hey like i'm an actress but she's always just going to be fucking nancy you know right yeah um so. no absolutely true um yeah i i think the problem with this is because freddie is this kind of more supernatural character that's why i think something like scream that gets really meta is much more successful because it's it's a send-up of just like a combination of slasher movies, which could have real world effects. And I think that is much more successful with the slasher genre than it is this kind of like supernatural slasher um, genre, I think, because you eventually have to tie it back. You have to show Freddy and Freddy still has to exist, like you said. And so you have to go the supernatural route some way as your explanation, even if you're trying to play with how uh fiction seeps into the real world um like you always have to go back to something supernatural at that point um i 
but I find it, I just found it interesting though, that like four, five and four on this list though, are both movies that deal with that idea of like horror seeping into real life in some ways. And I do think that, I think that Craven's setup is actually, I like the setup of both of them. It's when they become standard horror movies. It's almost the same exact thing. It's when they become standard horror movies that they fall apart for me to some degree. Right. Um, and it's because uh, yeah, the, the, that through line isn't dealt with in any kind of interesting way. Um, and I think that will probably end up being my argument for Scream is that I think the through line still follows through um, with that movie, which is why I think it's so inventive. But these two movies kind of fall apart by going back to the same standard uh, formula. Um, yeah, I agree with that. The other thing, too, that I think is interesting is um, the design of Freddy Krueger in this movie is much more like it's got that like weird like almost like hr giger um like biomechanical look to it Mm -hmm. and i fucking hate it yep and it's like it's so apparently that was how craven like had envisioned freddy always yeah was like that like that was his idea for him but like you know budgetary limitations and i guess the limits of practical effects they couldn't do that in 84 um, so it's almost like watching the fucking Star Wars re-releases, where it's like where George Lucas has like fat ass Abba walking around and right, like doing all this shit with CGI, and it's like man, like why would you fuck up a good thing when you had going on, and like sometimes you shouldn't let your heroes be able to like diddle their fucking past successes. <laughs> diddle their past successes. Yep. No. <laughs> No, I agree. I, I thought it looked like shit. I thought his claw looked like shit too. Kind of. I didn't like that either. Like the revival. Yeah, I, I I hate that. And that was like apparently that was the original idea was that it was going to be like this organic, like a legitimate like beast bestial claw, or whatever. But again, this is my point. Like why it's so just annoying. Where like the the limitations of budget and time, like to make this movie where you're like making people use their own imagination to make logical assumptions about what's happening as opposed to just like showing them everything. Right. Like, I don't understand how people that are that talented as filmmakers and as creators don't understand that that's the interesting part of the story, not the, all the shit that you're actually showing. Right. So, but whatever, it's still a fun movie. Still worth watching. I think. Yeah. No, I agree. Um, all right. So, Number three on your list is Phantasm Three: Lord of the Dead, directed by Don Coscarelli. It stars a Michael Baldwin, Reggie Bannister, Angus Grimm, and Gloria Lynn Henry. It has a 44% from critics, a 42% from audiences. We have talked a little bit about this movie on our Phantasm retrospective that we did a couple years ago. Um, but uh, why did this one specifically go ahead and make a year list for you? Um. Even though the nostalgia pick tends to fall in the fifth spot, um, I, I think this is the nostalgia pick for this list. Mm. Um, and I have a lot of nostalgia for all five of these movies. Well, not the first one because that's a recent discovery, but four of the five, like, you know, were things that I grew up, you know, enjoying and I, I loved as a kid. And, um, I definitely enjoyed the Phantasm universe. Um, I think this is the first one where 
so again like we've discussed the phantasm series at length i mean ultimately it's about the eternal struggle between the forces of good you know represented by mike and reggie um against the forces of evil and like kind of like cosmic destruction or whatever represented by the tall man um so this is the third in the series um following like their um their efforts to kind of like evade or destroy the tall man um i i like this movie because i think this is the first one that truly i don't know if embraces is the right word but like really pulls you down into the mythology of like what are the silver orbs like what exactly is um what does the tall man represent um what's his fucking name in real life angus like no 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 not the actor but you know the that the guy is actually a michael baldwin no 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 fucking the tall man's name in the real world oh um um, jebediah morningside yeah thank you that morningside is something other than that there's more to the universe that you're seeing than just like a straight horror movie about like a kid whose you know brother got murdered by fucking right. fuck. What do they call those metal balls? See, I'm should have oh, should have oh. gone back and listened to our podcast again on the fucking series. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I can't. I can't remember that kind of shit. Like it, it once once I have an interpretation of something, things that like kind of largely have little meaning to that interpretation i don't remember that shit anymore it just like leaves my head so i also think i think this is the movie that really establishes the fact that there's whether you whether you use our rationale for these movies of like the convoluted whatever like reality that we create in terms of like explaining how these movies connect or you just take it as like a like a really well realized and developed series like it's it's the first thing where you see that mike has like a clear connection to the tall man um Mm -hmm. where he's basically like part of the tall man in some ways or at least like part of his universe and he's stuck and oddly like pushes reggie to the forefront as the most unlikely (laughs) like horror action movie hero ever yeah um which he maintains throughout the entire series uh, the fucking balding ice cream man with the shotgun, mm-hmm. the Hemi Cuda that he tours around the countryside in. Yeah. Um, Coscarelli is a little goofy in his direction of this movie. Um, to me, in terms of like artistry, I guess, like the first one is his best. Um, just in the way that it looks and kind of like that hazy dream reality feeling that you get when you're watching that first movie um again this movie my complaint is that it feels like there's weight to everything so it it feels like it feels like you're watching a production which is one of my biggest complaints about most horror movies i think in the 90s like up through the 2000s which is they just lose that kind of like feeling of dread because they can't show everything like when they have the money to show everything, it kind of, I don't know, it kind of like removes some of that element of mystery and right. unease and whatever. But I, I really like the mythology building in this. Um, 
again, like we talked about these movies for probably an hour and a half on a podcast a very long time ago. Um, I think that the tall man is one of the most underrated horror villains in the tall man and the, um, the spheres. Um, what the fuck are those spheres called? Like, I cannot remember. I, I looked like, them up. They're just called orbs. I mean, like, the, they call it the orb, uh, according to Coscarelli. Like, but are I you talking about, like, what the character name. the characters call them? No, I just, I thought they had some other name. I guess not. I don't know. Um, anyway, like, you know, they have the fucking hand opener shits and whatever that pop out of them and can murder people. Um, I, I love the look of him. I love the look of Angus Shrim as the tall man. Um, one of our biggest inside jokes for years is the boy. Yeah. Um, of the tall man, like coming after Mike. Um, and I like the fact that Coscarelli is so, like, there's so few franchises where the creator of the franchise, actually, this might be the only franchise where this is true, like, maintains, solid control over every aspect of the universe from start to finish mm-hmm. like there's no spin-offs directed by other people there's no hands in the pot of like people forcing him to do anything else he just this is this man's vision and he has a clear through line from this to ravager i guess you know and for better or worse like he follows through on it and he definitely you know is creating like a fully realized universe which i think is really impressive for somebody to be able to do that especially in a world where you know you're kind of stuck like at the whim of like studios usually forcing you to make things or or taking your creations away from you yeah yeah i mean you're watching this i still really enjoyed it i i like it better than i like the second one i think overall and um a large part of that is like the recasting of Michael um, with James LaGrosse, um, probably in that second one. But I just thought this was more enjoyable because of the uh, elevation of Reggie as the lead. Um, yeah. gave it gave it kind of like a like that Sam Raimi Bruce Campbell kind of feel, like of this kind of like almost like comedy character being elevated into the role of protagonist in this horror action series and. I thought it had good results overall. Sure, it's cheesy, it's cheap at times, but um, I I, I still really think it's it's a fun movie. Um, I think two and three, outside of a few things, again, like are pointless to me, like to a large degree, like in the sense of like what I think all this is really about. But um, at the same time, like watching it again, I had a good time just having it on like you know and just kind of tuning out and just zoning out and watching yeah and it it really like furthers the idea of like the multiple dimensions and the fact that the tall man is just like moving between them and right almost like again like this like idea of like this cosmic um like threat that is carried with him by the tall man and it almost like creates a luke skywalker-esque character out of mike right um, you know, he's got the psychic link with like Jody, who's now like lives as a sphere and like can communicate with him psychically and he has powers and knowledge of the tall man. So in a lot of ways it kind of is like a I don't know, it's like the Empire Strikes Back of the Phantasm series. Yeah. Um Yeah. 
but they're yeah. just it's a fun series i really enjoy it and like it's it's always enjoyable to me to watch like any of these movies yeah except for Ravager. They, i've still only seen that the once i i really oh, don't remember yeah so have i it was terrible we've both talked about how bad it was. yeah i guess i've kind of pushed it from my head because i really remember like honestly to me the end of the phantasm series is the tall man and mike having that conversation on like the out in the desert yeah out in the desert with like the orange like fiery like sunset behind them yeah and yeah basically it's it's almost like the line in um the dark tower like there are other worlds than these and right you know kind of like they're both these like mystic travelers or i don't know whatever yeah right, right. uh but yeah no it's still enjoyable yeah yeah all right so now we're yeah. going to <laughs> we're going to move to uh Two foreign movies to finish off the list. Uh, number two on your list is Cemetery Man, uh, also known as Della Morte Del Amor. It is directed by Michele Suave, and it stars Rupert Everett, Anna Falci, and Francois Haji Lazaro. Um, it has a 60% from critics, a 78% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about this movie and uh, why it's so high on the list? Uh, so based on the, I guess the Dylan Dog horror universe of um Tiziano Schiavi, um who was an Italian like writer, comic book creator in the nineties, mm-hmm. um Rupert Everett is um Francesco Della Morte, um he is the groundskeeper slash gatekeeper of this large graveyard um in a small italian small italian town <laughs> of buffalora um the problem with this cemetery that um della morte is in charge of is that the dead tend to come back to life in it after seven days um so in a very like nonchalant and like nonplussed manner um he goes around with a revolver and basically like re-kills the dead um as they rise um he's aided in his task by a i guess implied mentally handicapped um grave digger named uh nagi um who the only thing you can say is nah um they kind of live this weird like semi-existence like just murdering the dead and putting them back in the grave um della morte is mocked by the inhabitants of the town for being impotent for some reason like it's implied that he can't like that he's what i'm you know whatever impotent um he falls in love initially with this woman who's the widow of this old guy that died um while they're having sex on the old guy's grave um he rises from the dead and bites her um, at which point, uh, Della Morte shoots her and then they bury her and then she rises from the grave and he realizes that when he shot her in the first place, she wasn't actually dead so that he killed her, um, which caused her to become a zombie. So he has to kill her again. Um, there's a really weird storyline with Nagi falling in love with the teenage daughter of the mayor of Buffalora. Um, who ends up dying in a motorcycle accident 
when her um, rebel without a cause boyfriend um, basically drives them under the wheels of a bus and they get she gets decapitated and Nogi rescues her head and then they fall in love and um the female character the actress that plays um the widow that Della Morte fell in love with um has recurring roles where she plays the secretary of the new mayor of Buffalora because the old mayor dies um when he's attacked by his daughter's severed head um weird uh, and not much of a plot to really talk about in this movie it's just like a series of connected events around the um francesco della morte character um the reason it's called della morte della more is that was his mother's maiden name was della more so it's like love and death basically is this guy's name um so he ends up going around and like like death appears to him and death is like look dude like you keep killing the dead and that's my job like why don't you kill the living if you go and shoot the living in the head they won't rise out of the ground and we won't have any trouble um so he starts doing that and he starts like just murdering people randomly um including the third woman that looks exactly like his he's played by the same actress who's a prostitute who he murders for being a prostitute because he had sex with her for money and so he burns her alive um and in the end him and nagi try and flee um there's an accident where nagi who hasn't been able to speak for the whole movie is suddenly now able to articulate like very eloquently um and uh della morte is only able to say no and then the camera pans out and they're in a snow globe. All right. That's it. That's the movie. So by my description, it probably sounds like I'm very like down on this movie. But I fucking love this movie. Like I think that it's number one, I really like the way that everything looks in it. Um, I love the look of the graveyard. I love the cinematography. Um, all the practical effects I think are really good. Um, I really like the look of the zombies in this movie, like the way that they're, um, it's kind of a nice combination between like day of dawn of the dead and return of the living dead. Like it's a good, oh, goodness. sorry. It's a really interesting, um, like practical, like really heavy practical effects. Um, but they still feel like there's things like, twigs like growing out of them and depending on how they died like objects like wedged in their flesh and um i really like the ghost lights in the first scene where uh he's having sex with the widow of the um uh the old man um there's just like flaming balls like floating around him but it's just it's a really neat effect um I guess I don't really care that it doesn't really make any sense. Uh, cause I don't think that it has to. I think it's just like, it's very reminiscent of the comics that it's based on where it's just these little like, you know, 10 to 15 minute episodes that are kind of like all interconnected by the characters in them. Um, 
the whole rape thing is kind of weird. Like, uh, very, very early 90s Italy, I think. Um, in that respect, just in the idea that, like, you can rape the frigidity out of a woman, basically. Like, if you give her some dick, then she'll realize that that's just what she needed all along. Um, which is kind of gross. Uh. Interesting, um, note about this movie is that, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Rupert Everett. No, the guy that created the whole series. Um, I've lost his name now. The comic book writer? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Slavi. Uh-huh. Um, was inspired to create his main character of his comics, Dylan Dog, by seeing Rupert Everett in a movie. So the fact that they got Rupert Everett to play it is basically like exactly what he envisioned by getting the guy that inspired him to create it hmm. to be in the movie. So it's pretty cool that um Everett is the the actor that's in this. That's saying. That um, this is stuff that like I was never super into these comics. Like I had friends that read them. Um, they're fine. Like they're more like high minded. Um metaphysical isn't the right word but just like abstract like it's not like firm like narrative plot lines it's just like here's some interesting things but it works i think in the context of the movie um i think the camera work in this movie is really impressive there's um some tracking shots and some um i don't even know what you call that like where they rotate the camera around a fixed point um and you see like different stuff in the background as it like rotates around a character or like an object um, this is pretty cool. Um, I don't know. I just I, I like the look of the movie. I like Rupert Everett in the movie a lot. I really think that he nails like the unimpressed, sardonic, like world weary aspect, but also the guy that just wants to be loved, which is a really funny like dichotomy in that character. Um <clears throat> has all this love but doesn't know where doesn't know where to put it. <laughs> Um. Yeah, I think you're more right than 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 you know when you say that because I, I do think this movie to some degree makes some sense, like more than just like a random bunch of random vignettes. Like it, it, there has to be a reason why the same actress plays three different characters. Like in the movie, like you don't do that unintentionally, right? So it's it's probably something like the fucking Sam Neil shit in, in the Mouth of Madness. It's absolutely yeah, where he's a character in something or he's stuck somehow. Maybe he's in purgatory. Maybe he's in hell. I mean, who knows? He's the guy in the coma, I think. Yeah, you know, again, probably. Um, I think he's the guy in the coma, and I think the things that happen at the end are the things that actually led him to be in the coma um, after like, oh, yeah. a suicide attempt, and it's him playing through all these things in his mind and trying to like come out the other side of it in some way and like try to understand the ideas of love and death and all that kind of stuff. Not being able to, right? Ultimately, yeah. Well, um, if well, if Nagi, I mean, if Nagi who can't speak and death is the thing that like if, if that character's death and Nagi is like say love in some way, the fact that like Nagi's able to speak at the end and throws the gun away, like maybe it means he reconciles to some degree. Like, I don't but know. then ultimately he's still just trapped because he's still in the snow globe. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like it's still just two small aspects of this like thing. Sure, it's like a pure, it's like a pure victory because you're still right. You're still like you know you're you're fucked <laughs> in a coma and 
you've already committed these crimes, you know, I think. But um, so, yeah, I think it's something like that. I don't know exactly. But uh, it's a really enjoyable movie. I mean, despite all that, like, I mean, I have to make things make sense for myself to some degree. Like, uh, it's hard for me to, like, kind of enjoy it. Um, so I thought about it some, like, just to just so I could justify my enjoyment of the movie. But I, I think it's a really fun movie to watch. Um, one of the claims is that about this movie um, is that it's actually not funny at all, even though it thinks it's trying to be funny. Hmm. Um, do you find it humorous? Yeah, I think there's some. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that I would call it a comedy. I think it's a horror yeah. movie with a good sense of humor about itself. Right. Um, I mean, shit, the thing where, like, the thing where Nagi has the daughter's head and she's like, are you shocked to see me on television, father? And mm-hmm. she's like, I, I want to marry him. And he's like, oh, you can't marry him. He's a he's an idiot. And she's right. like, well, I'm no great shakes myself. Dad, right. take a look. Right. It's like things like that are, mm-hmm. like, are funny. I mean, so whereas like Return of the Living Dead, like tends to veer more into the direction of actually being straight comedy at times. Mm-hmm. I think this is kind of like skirts that line in the other direction where the comedy is like circumstantial and situational and it's not um right. Um it's not forced. Like it just comes naturally like within you know cuz like it's not there's no jokes but it's funny when the the teen girl is like sobbing over the grave of her you know johnny motorcycle like lover who was killed in an accident and then he comes back and is like driving her around and they they follow them into the crypt and she's like he's eating me i'm allowed to decide who eats me (laughs) right Right. or it's my choice who eats me right it's like that's it's just funny you know yeah it's a funny scene so Uh agree and it doesn't take itself too seriously but it takes the world seriously enough where you don't feel like you're kind of being like condescended to, which I think is the trap of a lot of horror comedy. Right. That it becomes condescending because it's like, ah, oh, look at you, you idiot. You want to see some fucking violence and death and we're going to make a joke out of it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a beautiful movie too. Like I love the way it looks and <clears throat> good to see Rupert Everett like before, you know, he kind of aged prematurely and um, before his like real success in America. Right. Yeah. No, I agree. I really enjoy it. Like, I had seen this, like, I probably in, like, probably pretty early on, I guess, like, after it came out, like, 96, maybe, I think. Wesley had me watch it. And, um, I enjoyed it then. I think, I think I enjoyed it more this time. I think I got, like, the, the comedy aspect a lot more this time and, like, how kind of, like, ridiculous it is, um, at times and, like, really enjoyed that aspect of it a lot more than I did the first time. Um, yeah, no, it's a good movie. It's a solid movie that most a lot of people I don't think know about unless they even even some horror fans probably don't really know about this, is my guess. So how much did you look up um Mikel uh Suave? Uh none. He's um that this is your boy. He's a protege of Argento. Um second director for Tenabre, um Phenomena, Demons, Opera. Um, he also is an actor in Phenomena. Uh huh. So, so what? He was second unit director. Mm-hmm. Oh, he probably did all those um all those exterior shots that I like so much. He might have. Yeah. Argento um, is off like googling his fucking eight year old daughter at that point. I'm sure. 
Tons of yeah, I, I bet you. I bet you did tons of the second unit shots that I love. Um, in those movies, there's a lot of first unit shots that I also like in, in those movies. I'm being facetious at this point, but um, but yeah, uh, that's that, that that shit in the woods and phenomena where he's filming the um, it's just like the dimly lit trees at night, like with the wind blowing through mm-hmm. them. I love that shit so much. Oh, there's like stuff in Tanabre, like um, outside of buildings and shit like that, when she's just like walking and stuff like yeah. that. Like it's, it's like the lighting and those fucking things. Like, look, I'm sure Argento probably did all that, but I'm just, you know, making, making a joke. But, um, but yeah, as a second unit director, I mean, I'm sure he did some of that shit, you know? Um, he did, um, Demons as well, it looks like, right? Which is like one of my favorite, um, one of my favorite of those Italian horror movies. Um, is demons? That's the, the demons is the one in the theater, right? Yeah, movie theater. Yep. Yeah, yep. Um, yeah, this is my guy, maybe. Um, <laughs> uh, no, he's also second unit on Baron Moonshine too. Interesting. Did he did ever direct anything that was good though? Like besides this, the church isn't terrible. Um, oh, I never watched that. Okay, it's not super great, but it's it, it's actually. It has some amazing scenes in it. It's it's one of those movies that I'm always really conflicted by. Like whenever we talk about like eighties horror. I really don't ever bring it up because ultimately I don't think it's a good movie, but it's got some scenes in it that are amazing. So it's, uh, it's worth I, watching. Amazon was trying to get me to watch it for like all, oh, yeah. all of last oh. year. Like Dude, the you, you will see that thumbnail of like the smoke coming out of the doors with like whatever. Mm-hmm. Like your entire life. It'll be free somewhere forever. All right. People always trying to get you to watch that fucking movie. <laughs> uh, maybe I will someday. All right. So number one on your list is a movie that has this like kind of like moving target uh, year, it seems, depending on where you look, um, but also has is really hard to find unless you know what you're looking for. Um, because there are so many movies named Dark Waters or Dark Water, including one that just came out uh, in 2019, I believe, or maybe even 20, no, 2020, I think it was, with Mark Ruffalo. Right. And then there's the Dark Water um, Japanese horror movie, and then the American remake. Um, and then there's another Dark Waters that's also like sometime in the 80s or some shit like that. So it's a difficult movie to find, but this is 1994. Um, perhaps ninety three, perhaps ninety five, depending on what you're looking online. But it's ninety four is the is the is the year. Um, Dark Waters is directed by Mariano um, Bino. Uh, it stars Mariana Capnist, Luis Salter, Bernera Simmons, and Lubif Snergur. And it has no rating on by critics on Rotten Tomatoes, and it has a 54% from audiences. So considering all of that, the difficulty of finding this movie, I think the little-known nature of this movie, the definitely not-reviewed nature of this movie, um, do you want to tell us some about this and uh, why it's number one on the list of 1994? Um, it's number one just because it's fucking beautiful. Um. It's a really low budget um, film about this island where there's some 
you come to learn more about it like as the movie progresses but there's this sect of nuns that live on the island that are kind of like protective of this unknown thing that they're keeping down in like the catacombs underneath this church um the movie opens with this one nun like stealing this amulet and end up um being dashed on the rocks um while the other nuns take pieces of the amulet and kind of hide it um then there's this woman who's going to the island because her um mother was she was born there and she lived there for most of her life and then her mother died and with the death of her father she's now become wealthy um and he had like donated money to this um convent on this island for years and she's going there to see if there still is a reason why she should keep um donating money to this convent um on her way there the people are all that like live in the area are really weird and creepy kind of and nobody wants to take her to the island until like she pays this one guy a lot of money and he takes her there and then when he get she gets there um it's all just weird and creepy and um menacing and people seem like they're maybe out to get her but then she kind of befriends this other young novice that's there um there's a lot of things with like dreams and visions and some really disgusting shit like with like can eat dead fish um ultimately her and the novice or sisters their mother um had lived on the island and then had sent them away or after her death um and it turns out that basically there's this ritual that is going to when the amulet is like placed together um what is it going to bring this demon mother thing back to life yep um i'm trying to think of, it's it's not like necessarily an overly complex plot i mean it's basically like very lovecraftian in the sense of like there's this otherworldly horror that can be brought in by like humans and um elizabeth and sarah her sister um are the ones that can bring this creature back um so she's kind of got this like horrific responsibility of do i bring this evil into the world or do i like basically like, sacrifice myself to keep it out um the thing i love most about this movie because again like plot wise um it's just very much like a standard like lovecraft-esque um cosmic horror story you can tell that there wasn't like a huge amount of money that was invested in filming this movie, but this director um, just does an amazing job of the way that like he films this kind of ruined, like crumbling stone convent slash Island slash temple, whatever with the lighting and the angles that he uses. And he makes like, because when you think about it, you're seeing like the same environments like over and over. It's not like there's a huge amount of variety in like where it's filmed, but it always feels like fresh and interesting. And it's some really great like use of silhouetting and um, 
That's the word I'm looking for. But just kind of the brilliant way that he films things and it's it's just really artistic. I also like the fact that like I mean I I love shit that takes place in the water. Um we were talking about this the other night because I watched Crawl for the first time. Um and I love Crawl. Like I thought it was really like fun. I didn't think it was a good movie, but there was something about like the water element of it that I just really like dig. And I think that's true here. Like the fact that it just feels like damp and dank and I don't know, sort of like it has that great old one or deep one or whatever you like Lovecraftian feel to it. Like, I, don't know, I just, I, I dig the aesthetic. Um, it was a movie that I had never thought about or known about before um, that I saw through Tubi, maybe. I can't remember where it first came up, but it was just one of those things where like I was sitting there one afternoon. I was like, what the fuck is this? Amazon, um, Am- I, Amazon had it on for quite a while, too. It, it might have been. I, I don't remember. I just remember I saw the thumbnail. So the thumbnail of the um, the movie, when you look at it online, is I guess the cover of the hmm, the cover of the VHS or home video release. Um, and it's just this kind of like half obscured like demon face, like coming out of the darkness, like sort of like in um, sort of looking for like cast in like this red light with these like crosses and obelisks like rising up behind it against this blood red sky and it's just um it's a really cool image and so like watching it i was really impressed with just how beautiful it is it's got a lot of elements of like the mid-70s italian horror to it um you can definitely see that influence there from people like um like falchi and um uh Jean Rollin and you know a lot of those like artsy mid 70s horror directors baba um it does have that like it's it's a it was a russian production i think right mm-hmm. and you kind of feel that like eastern european um mistrust of outsiders like feeling to it yeah um, we were just talking um about the wicker man remake um on the quick cage not too long ago and honestly rewatching cuz you had me watch this like about a year ago almost exactly i think yeah um and then i just rewatched it again a week or so ago um and yeah i really liked this movie a lot uh overall like it was my i thought the best movie out of this list um overall just for the atmosphere of it but i i equate the atmosphere to something like uh wicker man like yeah um, like it's it's like yeah you're right it's like this kind of eastern european like with this kind of like wicker man-esque setting like on the shore like you know except for there's like more cliffs on the shore you know um and stuff like that but it's like you know this kind of like sea town with this kind of eastern european feeling but done by the italians like filmed by the italians and it's like it's a really interesting mix of these things yeah. It just creates this fantastic atmosphere. And really the reason I like this so much is just based on the atmosphere alone. Um, like the, 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 the feeling uh, like, uh, the, obviously it's filmed very well. I think, um, uh, it has lots of, you know, um, shadows, like, you know, it, it, it creates this kind of like dark, wet 
dank atmosphere um but it also creates this sense of unease and tension throughout and it's all it's all the things we like we talk about lynch like constantly when we talk about this stuff but it, it, it creates a sense of unease like through its scenes a lot of times um but it also has these lovecrafting of art uh, uh elements of like characters like you meet a character and it's like you're not sure what to think of the character right and and, and I really like those elements of it a lot. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's just a solid movie. Like I, um, I never heard of it and I never heard of this guy and I'm looking him up now. Um, have you seen any of the things he did in the two thousands or anything like that? I don't know. Any- I, and the, look, they don't have a lot of information, um, about him. Like, but it's a movie from never, never, ever after, never, ever after, right. I tried to find that. And then there's a lady, and then there's one that doesn't even have a wiki link, the Trinity of Darkness. And then there's like Lady M51, like which just the link takes me to the page for the movie itself. <laughs> like there's no wiki link; it's just a link to like the the movie's like you know uh, publicity page. So yeah, um, but when you look at this guy's like uh, bio, it's oh, it's like, Lady, it's a Lady Macbeth movie. It's Lady M 5.1. Based on Act 5, Scene 1 of Macbeth. Hmm. Interesting. That's really interesting. Um, hmm. uh, yeah, I, I was reading a little bit about this. Um, just a little bit, like, in terms of just, like, uh, how this is... Like, this is something that, like, has been growing. Like, the... the people weren't talking weren't talking about this movie necessarily like in 1994 no uh uh-uh. like this is something that's like grown like just really like just kind of like almost exponentially like in the actual sense of the term like you know like it just seems like it's just grown and grown through the years um uh which is fascinating to me that like uh there's still like the critical reviews are just not there on rotten tomatoes which is really funny to me i mean if you think about like I don't want to sound like whatever, like an egotistical dick, but like I know a lot about horror movies, especially from this time period. And I've seen like a lot of them, and I had never heard of this movie before it just randomly popped up on my, uh, you know, whatever streaming service I watched it on. So mm-hmm. that's, um, I mean, it's, it's pretty impressive that something could stay that hidden for so long, but sure. Like whenever you talk about, you know, how long can this we 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 have conversations like how long can we keep doing this podcast? I mean, shit. As long as stuff like this keeps like happening, you know, who right. knows forever. I mean, like, look, I say those things, but it's like when I say those kind of things, it's like how much longer? Where do we get tapped out? Is is more 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 uh, of movies right like you know like where what we do and don't want to talk about um is always what i mean that we could do this podcast easily for like another like 10 years i think and we'd be fine like oh yeah this shit um, stops me from going crazy because like for the longest time my problem was i would think about this kind of stuff and who the fuck am i going to talk to about it (laughs) right right so at least now i got like an outlet right and just run my goddamn mouth for (laughs) You're the one that's got to do all the work anyway. I just talk. Right. It's, it's, it's not that much work. Um, it ain't nothing for me. I'm the only little, I'm doing a little bit, a little bit of work. 
I'm doing all the stuff that I would normally be doing. Right. Um. Yeah, this is a really good movie, and I would. I, I don't care who you are. I would say that it's unless you're really opposed to horror. But I mean, like, um, I, I think this is a solid movie, and I I think just from a filmmaking standpoint, um, just if you're an admirer of film, I think it's worth watching just for that aspect of it. Agreed. Yeah. Um, and it's just like a revelatory thing, like this movie that very few people have seen, or man, especially before the past year. Or so right. Yep. But definitely definitely worth checking out. And yeah. Be on Tubi right now, I think it was it is. Where I yep, it's Tubi it. right now. Yep. Um with very minimal commercials on that one, it seemed. So all right. Well, um let's see. This week coming up on the quick cage, uh just to do a little bit of cross promotion, we will have our first ever at least quick cage watch along. Um where fuck what's the what let's uh score to settle um 2019's a score to settle uh frank and i um mm. are going to be watching that um together um and uh so that's that's going to probably be roughly around like a two-hour podcast uh for the quick cage which would be the longest quick cage so far um also did not by much i think like there's actually one episode of the quick cage that like basically what Almost the length of an action. An hour and 45 minutes, right? Something like that, yeah. Um, so, um, if you're interested in that, feel free to check that out. Uh, next week, we'll be back with the top five best bad movies, um, where Frank will be covering uh, the uh, what would be another name for that? Like, I guess, like... Uh, Guilty Pleasure Movies. Yeah, something like that. Like, you know, so it's, it's, it's a fantastic list. Um, we will be hopefully having like a guest star at least for one of those movies. One of our one of the friends of the podcast joining us for one of those movies. Um, and then the week after that, we will be doing a first watch, uh, with friends of the podcast of Mister Nanny, the Hulk Hogan, uh, children's family comedy movie. Uh, and then we will be back at the end of uh, June with the top five horror films of 1995. And then uh, the top five James Bond movies um, at the beginning of July. Then we move on to top five iconic movies with iconic couples, Frank. I forgot. If, I, I don't know if you remember that we determined that category, but um, that's one that you have to develop here soon. That's cool. Uh, so that's what we got coming up here uh, in the next couple of months. And uh, any final thoughts tonight, Frank? No, I mean, it was an enjoyable list. I liked um, a couple of these movies I've seen multiple times, but I, I enjoyed watching all of them again. So. All right. Well, thank you for listening, everybody, and have a good week. Yep. Have a good week.